This is Candlelands Media. Welcome to episode one of the Folk Horror Podcast, the first official episode, if you will, and I will say to you, happy Beltane, because that's when we're releasing this, is on May 1st. We are going to celebrate this day by discussing the 1973 movie, The Wicker Man, today. Mike and I talked for ultimately over four hours on a movie which is less than two hours long, and I've been working on cutting it down ever since. But I'm generally going to assume that if you're listening, you like movie conversation and analysis and or you really like The Wicker Man. So I'm going to let this go a little bit long and I'll probably get three roughly hour length episodes out of it. I'm a fan of hour long podcasts, so that's what I'm going to aim for. Roughly. I'm not going to be too strict about it. Uh, In folk horror related news, the new Wicker Man ride has gone up at the Alton Towers Amusement Park in Staffordshire, England, and the ride has already gotten rave reviews. According to the Stoke Sentinel, the wooden roller coaster received a 10 out of 10 from two thirds of the respondents. They've even created a spooky backstory about the ride related to the Bjornin, a cult of local people who ride through the burning Wicker Man as some sort of ancient ritual. I personally hate roller coasters, but I'd probably go on this. Why not? I always want to also give a shout out to some of the things that Folk Horror Revival is doing. And one of the most recent announcements was that the second edition of Folk Horror Revival Field Studies was just released. The book has been redesigned and has new interviews and essays in it. I was particularly excited to see a new interview with Susan Cooper uh, with Andy Pachorek, who asked her about Alan Garner, which I thought was a particularly nice touch. Um, Also in there is an article by Andy about folk horror comedy. So check that out. A bunch of new stuff. The original book was 498 pages. This one is 547. Uh, So... A lot of good stuff for you to check out, and I guess the first edition is now a collector's item too, right? Uh, The upcoming official folk horror revival event, Swan Song, still has tickets available. It's an evening of haunting music with Sharon Krause. Also, Hawthorne and Sarah Dean will be playing. It's in York, England, May 12th, so consider checking that out. I live in Michigan, and I started looking at some cheap tickets online from Wow Air, I thought it's not out of the question. I mean, I probably won't be able to go, but if you look, you can find some last-minute cheap tickets. So now I guess we'll get right into the conversation. Part one of three or maybe four. I'm not sure. After all the editing I did, there's still quite a bit left. So I hope you enjoy this, and I'll be in touch a little bit later to discuss other things we have going on. Okay. Are we gonna get? We're gonna get into spoilers too, right? We yeah. Can say that. 
And that's the other thing is too watching this from from the beginning now and knowing how it ends. That's cool too because you can see how well basically how the villagers are lying to him from almost Absolutely. the minute he gets there that they're already they're yeah. already doing yeah. the, the game. Yeah, it's it's like a, it is a game of clue. It's a big game of you know breadcrumbs. They're basically dropping breadcrumbs from him and and yeah, they're just leading him along basically. So I I got a lot of pleasure out of knowing that. And we should also talk about um, the version that we watched, which is the final cut from a few years ago, right? Which is the, the middle version. I guess it's the compromise between the director's cut and the original theatrical cut. Yeah. Um, I just wrote down a little bit of information, which is that the first screening was – I just got this from Wikipedia. But the first screening was December 1973. That was the 87-minute version. And at the same time, they sent a 99-minute version to Roger Corman – for the u.s released and that he recommended cutting 13 minutes out of it which actually then that makes it 87 minutes roughly as well sure. and then it was released as a b-movie with don't look now which is pretty cool like that's a, yeah, a pretty neat double bill about that imagine going to the theater to see both of those back to back yeah which, you know i was gonna say i mean it must have been really incredible to go see both these films back to back because they both have an eerie otherworldly atmosphere to them and have some dark kind of dark fairy tale aspects to both of the films. So yeah, I know, I know it was just an accident of history that they got released together. I don't think there was anything purposeful about it. I think they they were trying to bury the wicker man literally on the, on the B on the B side. Uh, So, you know, because I think at this point they had no faith in it ever making any money. Uh, But, but it would have been incredible to see both of these films back to back. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and then I was reading their efforts to restore it were made like as soon as 1979, they were already doing a different version of it. Um, and then there, it said that there was a U.S. VHS version that had scenes that hadn't been seen before, such as scenes in the police station. Yeah, well, so that's in the director's cut, so um, oh. which I haven't seen. Uh, and so that VHS version apparently was the director's cut, and it was, I think it's like 99 minutes or something. Okay. So, you know, we're not talking about, like, tons of missing footage here, but it did. So once we get into our kind of play-by-play of the film, I I did put a note of the different beginnings of the three films. They each begin differently. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about that difference. But, I mean, I got to say, having seen the theatrical version and having seen this version, this is just so much superior. Uh, I mean, no surprise, right? Because Robin Hardy, it was cut, it was taken out, out of Robin Hardy's hands and recut. As, as a way of really just, you know, making it perhaps more palatable, more uh, relatable, or more, uh, I don't know, simple, simpler. Uh, and so, and a lot of the nudity was cut out because of the British censors and, you know, all that stuff. So, I don't know, it's a clear cut case of this director's cut being so superior to the theatrical cut. And that's how I saw it the first time was the theatrical version. So, how about... Maybe before we jump into the film, talk, talk. We can talk a little bit about our first exposure to the film. Yeah, go, our... yeah, go for it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, mine's not that interesting, but I, I found it in Kmart, so <laughs> I guess that part's interesting. I had no idea what it was. Uh, literally, it was it was the Anchor Bay DVD, uh, which was the first DVD, really cheap DVD, even though I like Anchor Bay, and it was on the DVD section in Kmart. I bought it for nine ninety nine, I think and watched it immediately because I'd, I'd heard of it. I mean, it is kind of a famous cult film. It was actually listed as one of the original cult films uh, in a number of, of, like, histories of cult films. Oh. And 
Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a great film or a film book called Midnight Movies by um, Jay Hoberman. And it's actually listed in there. And that's where I first read about it before actually even even hearing about it. So I, I'd heard about it, but I didn't hear much. And when I saw it at Kmart, I, I remembered the name. So I bought it and I watched it that night. And it blew my mind. It literally is a case. This film was did not take any time to um, establish a foothold in my brain and in my in my uh, subconscious. It, it literally took hold right away. And, you know, I didn't even know then that I was watching a, a bouldered eyes kind of uh, edited version of it. And and it was such a cheap disc that it never played again. Literally, it played one time. <laughs> so, which, which is kind of cool because it's like you know, it had it added to the mysterious quality for me of this film. Like, wow, maybe it's designed to only play once. Hmm. And uh, and then years later, I saw it again with Janine. I needed. I always have to like we love horror movies and odd movies, and so I had to show her the film, and she fell in love with it. And then this was my third viewing uh, last night. And, uh, you know, first using the Blu-ray, which is amazing. It looks incredible. I mean, the, the outdoor cinematography looks better than ever on the Blu-ray. And so, yeah, it, it was uh, like seeing it again for the first time. Um, well, for me, so what about you? Yeah. Uh, for me, I was, uh, I was really confused whether I'd seen it or not. And I heard a friend of mine sort of ranting about this terrible movie he saw. Um, and he was telling me all about it. Uh, and this is when I was living in Colorado and I was, he was telling me about the worker man. And I was like, that sounds kind of cool. And I'm not sure if I saw it somewhere along the line. I feel like I must've, but I had this weird, comp uh, compulsion just a couple years ago. And I think I was just starting to understand the folk horror term terminology. And I was like, I gotta go see the worker man. And I just went out like almost like I was driven with this madness, I went to I went to Barnes and Noble and I found the Blu-ray and bought it. And I was like, I feel oh, like cool. I feel kind of as like I don't usually buy movies really. So I was like, right. am I am I just like wasting my money on a random movie? But no, I almost I almost just needed to see it, and so I I bought it. And I was like, oh my god, I mm -hmm. remembered parts of it, but I, I'm just not sure if I had seen it before or not. But where do you, where do you think you might have seen it? Like on TV? You know, I have this weird memory of being in someone's house. And like maybe I was house sitting for them and watching it, but I'm really not sure if it's just a random memory. I I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You might have seen images from it too, and then your memory transformed them into a different memory. Right. <laughs> yeah, it must have been talked about a lot. Yeah. And and your first kind of connection. So your first connecting this movie to the idea of folk horror was also the first time you saw it because you'd already kind of or or really the the most recent time I, I think it might have been when i was starting to understand there were people interested in this subgenre but but maybe even before i'd heard the term like i yeah. i just was kind of like i think it was maybe me piecing together a lot of the th I, there was a time when i was like wow i like this kind of music like boards of canada that's kind of strange and kind of retro feeling and then right. i was thinking I, I like these tv shows like doctor who the tomorrow people from the 70s and the children yeah. of the stones and i was like piecing everything together and being like i think there's I think there's some connection here. And then, you know, that was maybe when I was like, I got to go see the worker man. And then I think I was, I was like that at that point, maybe I found out that folk horror was a thing. And then I pieced it all together, I guess. Yeah. That's it's interesting. Hard to remember. I mean, obviously folk horror is a recent term, right? I mean, it was only coined in the two thousands or, or later. Yeah. And... It was only officially coined. Like people had used the yeah. phrase before, but yeah. Yeah. 
but when you watch The Wicker Man, I mean, it's it is it pretty much defines everything that is folk horror. I mean, from the literal aspect with its use of folk music and folklore, to to the horror aspect where it's really uh, not an obvious horror film. It's more um, subtle and brings the idea of like comparative religion into it. Like for you know, for me watching it this time around, I I actually became more aware of it as a horror film because. For Sergeant Howie, you know, it is it is a horror film. Yeah. I mean, everything that happens is horrific. And probably for us as the viewer, a lot of it, in my, I, for me, I, I was a little bit more uh, tuned in to the horror aspects of it. You know, this kind of idea that, um, you know, putting a toad in your mouth will cure a sore throat. And, uh, you know, that's kind of disturbing. But then it goes from there to, you know, teaching kids about sex, you know, could be considered somewhat terrifying uh the um you know watching looking at seeing a naked woman in a cemetery is kind of a, a haunting image uh, yeah like it's it's blasphemous this sort of blasphemous imagery yeah yeah, yeah like exactly. the desecrated church for example yeah. right right which is used you know the desiccated church is an uh, image that's used in hammer films yeah you mentioned roger corman too that image of the desecrated church i remember very very well from a specific corman poe film the tomb of lygia and so that's used typically in like the victorian horror style but in this film you know it's it's the church has become something else it's become a site a, a return of the old gods and the old religion and yet it uses those horror trappings in order to make that point so right. i thought not that, and you know, there's some genuinely frightening images in this film. I mean, I I think that for me, like one of the scariest scenes is when, um, so he's I, I think when he's uh, trying to leave the islands, right? And you get the first images of the people in the animal masks. Yeah. And they look they look over the stone wall at him, and then they kind of duck down so that they don't he doesn't see them. I mean, you get this discordant music, this. The strings, the ominous music on the soundtrack for me that was truly frightening, actually. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and just I was thinking about the desecrated uh, church. Uh, that's kind of, it's kind of the a flip of the way that it worked in real life, which is that there would be a holy site, a pagan holy site, and then the church would be plopped on top of it. So it's almost, yeah. you know, you could almost just look at it as they're regaining the the sacred land for their for their religion. Absolutely. It's a reverse of what usually happens, which is that the Christians come in and they, they actually demolish the old, the old structures, the old uh, temples, and they use the actual stones of the old temples to build their church. You know, so the symbolism there is that the church is, you know, reclaiming the land is, is and also kind of in order to convert the, you know, the indigenous peoples using using their own places of and not just convert them but to really just completely destroy the, the old mythology yeah. using actual raw materials of that mythology so i remembered like traveling in mexico to mayan ruins and so we went to a number of towns in the yucatan peninsula and uh saw a number of mayan ruins and these the the churches that stand there now are literally built from the same mayan stones that the old pyramids and the old temples were built from and you're right. This film reverses that. It's actually takes. It's really clever, actually, how it how they they take the church in this film and they use it to bring back the pre-Christian, the Celtic pre-Christian mythology and religion. Yeah. But that was really really cool. Do you do you want to start? Yeah, I, I like your idea about talking about um, how the 
different movies begin. What I was just going to say was I watched, I have the DVD version, which is not the final cut. I guess that's the theatrical version. Um, yeah. And that's the one that begins with wishes to to thank Lord Summer Isle, the kind of yeah. a, a humorous little yeah. thing. And that's, that wasn't in the final cut they, that was taken out. I, I missed that. I, I remembered that and I missed it. I thought that was a cheeky, humorous way to start to like make it sound. So we should say for any listeners... I guess that it starts with a blurb that basically indicates that there actually is a real Summer Isle uh, and that there is a real Lord of, of Summer Isle and kind of adds some kind of historical legitimacy to it. And it's completely bogus. It reminds me of Fargo. Remember Fargo had that had a line at the beginning that was like, this is based on a true story. And it wasn't at all, but they just because <laughs> immediately you see that and you're immediately kind of drawn in. It's kind of like the Blair Witch thing, you know, where you're just immediately like, oh, wow, this. Hey, you know, there's yeah. something, you know, and that probably, you know, that fades by the halfway through the movie. You're like, wait a minute, this that doesn't yeah. make any sense. But at least it gets you in the right mood to, to start the movie off. So the three different beginnings of the film. So in this beginning of the film, yeah, it has that blurb. I think all three of them start with the image of the the sun, right? The, uh, sim the kind of symbolic uh, uh, icon of, of the sun image. And then it gets into the actual start of the film, right? And in this version of the film, the director's cut, it starts with the flashback of him in church taking the communion wafer, which is, you know, which is the sacrament, and talking about on the soundtrack you hear him, or you actually see him leading the uh, leading the service, talking about the um, sacrament and the the bread and and the wine, uh, signifying. The, the body and the blood of Christ. And the original theatrical version started directly with him on the plane, I recall, right? Yep, and that's right. I, and and I actually really, I actually kind of like the use of the flashback in the beginning of the film. It, it actually gives you a nice prologue, a nice setup to where Sergeant Howie is coming from. You know, he's an extremely religious man. He's He also believes in Christian symbolism, which I, I think is important to establish that parallel between the Christian symbolism and then all the other symbolism we're going to get. And then I'll just note that the director's cut version starts with an entirely different footage that was never used in the other two, and that's him at the police station, which I don't know what the purpose of that one was. I didn't see that, but I guess it, it gives him more of a backstory and I think probably unnecessary from, from what I've heard. Yeah, it, it does sometimes feel like in the director's cuts or final cuts that they just kind of want to include everything you know what i mean like they're like well we got this piece and it kind of fits in because I, to be honest i'm not sure you necessarily need the church scene at the beginning like yeah i i can and also because later on in the movie they flash back to it and i don't know if that was in the original or not that they flash back to it yeah i don't remember it in the scene when he's being tempted by willow he kind of flashes back to to communion and 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 church yeah i remember that oh you yeah. remember that okay yeah so yeah well, not, I, I don't know if that was in the original, actually, but I, yeah, I mean, I might have just remembered it from the beginning of this film, this but version. But you're right, yeah. because it, it does make you know immediately that he's Christian, and you kind of have to, it takes a while to pick up on that if you didn't have that scene in the in the beginning, so. I think, I think it would work fine without it, too, though, which gets to your point. I mean, there's, I, I think there's two parts of the film that I think were slightly unnecessary, and, and maybe it's that prologue, and also where Christopher Lee... It, pretty much over explains everything at the end of the film where he, he talks about uh, it's a bit on the nose where he, he gives an explanation for why, why they brought him to the islands. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's definitely a few, a few over explaining 
scenes of the film, but right. uh, yeah, I, I like I like this as the beginning. Yeah, and yeah, uh, and then you're. Yeah, I was going to say apparently the uh, so the sun face the the mask yeah. apparently right. that's the god uh, Nawada, who yes, they mention the later in, and I yeah. I read also that Nawada is um the same god as Nodens, who Lovecraft actually refers to. Oh, Which I right. thought was kind of neat, yeah. Like a little, it's it's he's kind of one of the like more benevolent gods in in yeah, Lovecraft. But I, I looked him up too, and I saw. I mean, he's it's a, he's a, a king in in Irish mythology of a mystical race apparently that came to Ireland. Which which kind of actually just indicates how they really did use a mishmash of mythology. Yeah, you know, Gaelic, Celtic, you know, other mythologies. Kind of. So there's nothing I think you can say that's pure about their use of mythology and symbolism and i think they changed some things too like this the nuada character apparently is not a sun god uh, maybe i just read that on, on a certain website and you found a different website but you know they talked about him being more of a figure of divine justice okay uh, rather than a sun god so uh, yeah I, I don't know maybe it could be both i just uh, saw that on an irish irish mythology website yeah interesting yeah. I, have, yeah. I have no idea but but there is something interesting about this too because the king what I read about King Nuada is he came to Ireland to conquer the island, and they burned their ships so they could never leave. And so they obviously had this him and this mystical race of of giant giant peoples came to the island, burned their ships, basically fought a war and took over the island. And it kind of for me that parallels in the film a little bit the whole founding story of Lord Summer Isle and his family coming to the island and and I think probably then the island was barren and abandoned but you know kind of imposing their will on the island uh, to kind of shape it into what what they wanted it to be yeah to, to raise, raise these new strains of crops and and raise these new strains of people uh, and the idea of burning their ships also reminded me of how his plane after he lands the plane on the water you know, basically, he can never go back. It's it's like his his ship, his uh, plane, is is never ne never able to he's never able to get it to start again. Uh, so there's something really final and permanent about coming to the island. So, the first thing that I saw then once it actually once they all sort of then start with the part where he's on the plane, coming in, and you see the beautiful landscape, and there's that music playing over it. Right, that's how. Yep. Um, and then it, the first thing it says is Anthony Schaefer's Wicker Man, which I thought was kind of surprising. Yeah. L like, yeah. you know, like I even like had forgotten his name and I was like, wow, it's just. And then because I've also seen it referred to as like Robin Hardy's Wicker Man. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I wonder I wonder how how that happened that that he got like first billing. Maybe he was a well I guess he was a pretty well known um, yeah. screenwriter at the time. So. <laughs> Certainly more well known than Robin Hardy, right? I mean, right. Robin Hardy was an obscure director of documentaries and, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, short films, business films. Uh, Anthony Schaefer was a well-known playwright. I think he'd already won a Tony Award by this time okay. as well. I may be wrong. Maybe Sleuth came after, but so yeah, it could just be the name value. But I, but I, um, but it really feels like both of their film, right? I mean, it doesn't seem to belong to one more than the other. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot of people's, yeah, a lot of people's film. Yeah, for sure. You, you mentioned the other day it's based on a book that I had never really heard about this. Yeah, so it's it's based, so they got some inspiration from a book called Ritual by David Penner, enough that I think they paid him to use elements of the book. And I started uh, listening to it on tape the other day, and it's just, it's very different. It takes place in Cornwall, for one thing. 
Um, but it and it's an actual like in the first page, a child is murdered, and then and the villagers don't seem to responding to be responding correctly to it, and that's what gets the the investigator you know concerned. So it's yeah. it's very different in that you know there is a murder almost on from page one. Um, yeah. Apparently, I haven't gotten through the whole book, so I don't. There are apparently some other things that are similar. Um, I, I found a, I think I found a video where the author is making his case. David Penner is making the case for what elements from his book were used in the movie. You know, just to be like, uh, I really, they really did. It really is for my book. So, um, <laughs> well, I didn't see any. There's no accreditation to to the original author, and no. I mean, I, I guess you you could say that. Anthony Schaefer transformed the story so much. I mean, basically just using the loose outline of the story. And it, it might have just really... been they didn't want to get sued. So they were yeah. like, you know, well, yeah. it kind of is like this. And we did read the book, so we got to yeah. acknowledge him. So you mentioned the uh, image of the sun in the beginning. So, you know, we, we should say that there's a ton of symbolism in this film, you know, probably more than we can get into. But one of the recurring images throughout the entire film is sun, the sun. And you see it in the very beginning. It's the first shot of the film. It's also the last shot of the film. As, yep. the, as, the, uh, as the film climaxes, you get a shot of the burning sun on the horizon. And it's, it's used throughout the film. You see one of the first images after he lands on the island or after he um, leaves the boat and takes the dinghy to the island is the sun on a flag. Yep. And, and that's, um, you know, that kind of is a, is a flag post or a signpost to obviously the worship of the sun on the island. And there's also an image of a painting that I wanted to ask you about that comes later, which yeah. is, you saw that. Yeah, it's a painting of a sun. It's got a horse, a rider on a horse, and there's also a flag with the sun on it in that painting. And I wondered if that was King Nuada, if that was a painting of, of the king, this mythical Irish king. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. But just wanted to note that there's lots of imagery of the sun in this film. And I would say if of all the symbolism in the film, it's it's the sun it's the hair, right? There's tons of hairs in the film. Rabbits are oh, hairs. right, right. Uh, and and of course, all the animal imagery. Those are like the three for for me that stood out as far as symbolism. Were, were there other symbols that you saw recurring? Yeah, there's there's some there's there's an eye at one point on 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 the boat that they're taking out, yeah. and you're yeah, just like, I why why is why is that there? What what is? Um, yeah. I had no idea what that meant, but they show it twice. They show it uh, both when he's leaving the sh the plane to go to the shore after they reluctantly go out to meet him. And then they show it when he goes back to the boat, when he tries to leave the island. They actually, the camera really focuses on that eye, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah maybe also know. just me, makes me feel like there's an all-seen quality to Lord Summer Isle, where he's, you know, he basically has, he tabs on all the movements and going on, goings on on the islands. And it's yeah. And all... All I think I, I'm not sure. Okay, so there was a novelization that Robin Hardy wrote after the movie came out, and I think it may have been in there or somewhere else where they mentioned that either Lord Summer Isle or like one of his minions was watching Howie in on his day to day base on his day to day route around town, you know, and kind of right. learned. I mean, they had to figure out that he was a Christian and that he was a virgin, yeah, a virgin and um, yeah. so so there was clearly some some background where they had to you know stalk him sure. at some point yeah there's it seems like all the villagers it, it has that cult feel where they all are they're all the eyes of the, of the village they're right. all watching and reporting on his movements to to the lord summer isle 
but anyway, with the imagery, we're, we right at the start, we were kind of clued into this film's highly symbolic, and it's a rather literal symbology um, in many cases. And so you mentioned, so right at the beginning, he's flying, he's coming in on the plane. And I just wanted to talk about the symbolism of that, because I, I this time around, I kind of had an aha moment where like, oh, he arrives on the island from a plane, from the sky, right? Like, this is where his God resides in the sky. I had this sense that he's kind of like, you know, he's coming from. He's an know, angel. He's kind of an angel. He's, you know, he's. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. He's yeah. pure. He's a virgin. He's an angel. He's. He's like the the kind of pure ideal of Christianity in that he believes, you know, doggedly in in the ideology and, and sometimes literally in Christian ideology and the sen the symbolism of him coming from the sky to a, a culture and a and a religion that's based in the land, based on the ground. That really resonated for me with the beginning, especially with all of those exterior shots. And we should we should note here that the film was filmed in Scotland entirely, uh, but those those initial shots of the plane were taken uh, en route to the Isle of Skye. Uh -huh. And apparently they did sh include a few shots from South Africa, too, which is weird. Uh, <laughs> I think I think that was actually Robin Hardy had done a previous film or documentary, and he just kind of, because of the um, seasonal, he, so the film's supposed to take place in the springtime, because, of course, it's about harvest and rebirth, and or rebirth of the spring. But they actually shot the film in November, I guess due to the the cheap budget they had to shoot it all in a brief period of time in november and so in order to show the foliage blooming in springtime that's why he included a few shots from south africa um which is interesting yeah uh, but those initial shots are beautiful i mean the, the 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 islands and the cliffs are incredible from i mean just amazing aerial photography and uh really gives you a sense of place but it's just interesting that it's it's not the place where the film is supposed to take place. It's from the Isle of Skye, whereas I think the rest of the film was was done and filmed in southwest Scotland in this Newton Stewart area or, uh, and, and other locations, too. But, um, yeah, those aerial shots are amazing and the symbolism of coming from the sky and landing on this island. The sense of also the sense of isolation on this island. I, I got a lot from that. This episode is brought to you by nobody currently, but that could change. So contact me at neil at candlelens.com. If you would like to advertise on the podcast and have your product or service, as long as it's, you know, folk horror related, um, I think you'd find that this is a good audience for it. And your ad would be right here, right between Mike and me talking about The Wicker Man. So let me know. I'm going to be working with very reasonable rates Send me an email, neil at candleends.com. There's that music playing, and apparently the, the girl who's later in in the school scene, the the girl who tied the bug to the nail. Yeah, yeah. Appar apparently she did the she sang that opening song. She sang that, and actually that actress who played that girl is in the wicker tree. Oh really? Playing a character oh. also named Daisy, like the same exact oh. name. So oh, there's some oh. weird there's some weird connections. Um and then I it, like the fact yeah, that he had ahead. the characters 
I, I just like the fact that he has a lot of the characters sing sing the songs on the soundtrack. Even Christopher Lee gets to use his operatic voice. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that maybe didn't fit in quite as well, but uh, that opening song was actually really beautiful. And I looked it up, and it's the Highland Widow's Lament. It's a Robert Burns poem. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so that what I noted, and I looked at the lyrics to the Robert Burns poem, and the poem it's all about the idea of sacrifice. It's it's really interesting. It's actually about the Je Jacobin Rebellion in Scotland, and um, that the kind of uh, I guess the attempt to restore the House of Stuart, uh, the Scottish House of Stuart, to the throne in England, and or in Great Britain. And, and so the song is itself about a widow, a widow who's beloved dies in that rebellion uh, i guess i think even specifically it mentions the battle of culloden uh am i i'm probably pronouncing that wrong so that's that me. sounds right yeah so yeah it's, a, it's the lyrics are all about the sacrifice that her beloved made to this rebellion and so i felt like well that's perfect the symbolism or the, the, the idea of sacrifice is set at the very beginning with the very first song yeah yeah and we don't we don't focus much on this that it's scotland too which is already rebellious from from england you know what i mean yeah so like when i visited scotland uh, a, a long time ago it was clear from the moment i got off the train like the first thing they asked me was they, they were like so how do you like glasgow and i was like oh and all i had really seen was the train station so i was like oh it, it's a lot like london <laughs> and they were and they were like you could visibly see that they did not like that answer yeah. Um, <laughs> no. And then I was like, uh, but it's uh, cl it's cleaner. <laughs> so that that's I mean, that's in itself. Scottish Scotland is already sort of once removed from England. And even though the police officer, he's Scottish as well. He's much more a anglicized. We should say that, you know, there are a number of Robert Burns poems that are a famous Scottish poet. And immediately yeah. after that song, The Highland Widow's Lament, it goes right into Corn Rigs. Uh, which which was an original originally written song for the film, right by uh, Paul Giovanni, the composer, uh, and yet it's based on a Robert Burns poem that I, I saw, another poem by him. Yeah, the original song is "Barley Rigs," I think, by by Robert Burns. It was upon a llama's night when corn rigs are bonny. Beneath the moon's unclouded light I held a while to Annie The time went by with careless heed Till tween the late... Okay, well, I have some information, but it may or may not be accurate. But it says, Rig is an Old English language word meaning a bumpy fell or ridge or dweller at a ridge or range of hills. So it might just mean more of a uh, field, like a field. Yeah. Okay, so that makes sense because you, one of the aerial shots you get is of the, the corn and the barley fields. You, get, uh -huh. you actually get an aerial shot of it as the song's playing. So, yeah, yeah I think that makes sense. So do you remember what the villager says to, to Sergeant Howie? The first thing that the villager says to Sergeant Howie from the shore as he, after his boat lands? No. So the first, I think it's the first line of dialogue from the villagers, or the first line of dialogue in the film, other than the church scene, and it's, have you lost your bearing? Uh -huh. and I thought that, yeah, I thought that's kind of cool, the double meaning of that, because this man is clearly about to really lose his bearing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think also here we first see how the villagers, in a way, give him a lot of chances to kind of turn back. You know, yeah. like this is almost the first time they won't even 
don't even want to let him on shore. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, well, even though this is part of their plan all along to trap him, they're kind of like, you know, you can go back now. And again, yeah. they again and again, like they 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 say things like, maybe you should just leave and not worry about this. Yeah. You know, like they well, give him that chance. I think they do that because in order for the sacrifice to work, he has to come to the island of his own free will. Yes. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, but he's he's. I think I wondered. The question I wondered is. Are they giving him a chance to leave sincerely because he a he has to come of his own free will for the sacrifice to take or b because they actually want to give him an opportunity to save his life you know and 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 leave or c is it all a game is this part of the game to to get him to actually come to the island and make it look like something mysterious is happening so that he will want to come you know even though he's already there yeah. I don't know. well I mean, even the temptations that they give him, like Willow's temptation, if he had succumbed to that temptation, then probably the sacrifice would be off, you assume. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so they are right. sort of giving him these chances, and yet they probably know that he's not going to take any of them. Yeah. Yeah. So at some point, maybe on another episode or something else, we can talk a little bit about the, uh, I mean, we'll talk a little about the landscape, but there's something about the isolation of an island. Uh, of you know this taking place on a complete in a uh, something a place that's completely cut off from the rest of the world yeah and the, that for some reason really resonates with the idea of Great Britain and the history of Great Britain you know which is an island which is in some ways cut off from the rest of Europe and the rest of the world and is a place where these religions and ideologies can take root because of the isolationism and the um, you know there's a Darwinian word for it that I can't remember about when a species evolves in distinct ways, like on Madagascar or on Easter Island or well, other places, um, Galapagos, not Easter Island, Galapagos Island, so that, you know, these species evolve in very unique ways, separate from mixing genetics with other other animals. And, and yeah, I thought about that. I thought about how this religion could have evolved because of the isolation of the island, because there's no connection to the outside world. Yeah. And we should, we should probably note that this film is contemporary. It, it Unlike a lot of these types of films, although I don't, I'm not sure what type of film it is, but a lot of films that are based in mythology and, and the, you know, this film actually takes place in contemporary times and it has a really ancient feel to it that's at odds with that. Yeah, I, I was going to say um, there's a, a documentary series on the islands of England because there are a lot of different islands and you do have these communities that, you know, they're not as extreme but you do see these communities where like, wow, this these people on this island have almost made a commune out of their island or, you know, or, uh, or this island are, are very, are very religious, more religious than people on 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 the on the main mainland of England. Um, so I wanted yeah. I wanted I recommend that it's on it's on YouTube and it's have you seen Doc Martin at all? The actor who's in that is the guy who does this documentary series on um the islands of england yeah you'll see those those big islands because they have those really big islands in scotland and even um you know the story about um uh, donovan uh basically founding his own hippie commune right. and that's the whole vashti bunyan story of her going up north too so yeah. she obviously taking a horse and carriage to get there is yeah interesting and obviously there's a scene with howie riding in a horse and carriage kind of getting a tour of the estate in this in this film in the wicker man that just, you know, just made me feel like, wow, that, you know, there's no cars, there's no, this island is really trying to, you know, to peel back the time, time and history and, 
go back to this time pre-automobile, pre, uh, pre, you know, manufacturing, industrialization, uh, you know, and, and one of the things we should probably note, too, is the idea, the appeal of this film in the 70s to a lot of people, I think, had to do with the fact that that was kind of the back to the earth movement era when, you know, people were looking to, you know, like Donovan, people like him and Vashti Bunyan were looking back to pre-industrial England and trying to create their own communes. And a lot of people who watched this film saw it of a piece with that. But but the film is not that simple. I mean, it, I think the great the beauty of this film is that it isn't necessarily a pro-pagan or pro-counterculture or a, a kind of pro-pre-industrialization of England film. It's, you know, it's actually pretty, pretty um, agnostic, agnostic on that. And it's agnostic on religion in general and on, uh, you know, whether the ways of the island are superior to Howie's, you know, more uh, Presbyterian background is, is left open. It's not, it's not definitive in the film. I mean, you get some people who watch the film who have more of an inclination towards paganism will see Howie in a completely negative light from the very beginning. But I think others watching the film may be sympathetic to, to Howie and, and Sergeant Howie and, and may be more horrified with, with what happens on the island. Yeah, I was just going to say, especially early on, you feel like the villagers, and by the way, they used real villagers, like real locals for those villagers that are on the, on the shore. But you, you, you almost immediately are like, well, they could be nicer to this guy. And then I noticed that when he goes into the candy shop, which is almost coming up right away, um, and he's talking to the girl, he is a kind of, he is kind of a friendly police officer. You know, he is at, he, he's putting yeah, that yeah. out at first. So you could be like, okay, this guy, you, you can respect him that he's, he cares about trying to solve this mystery. And actually he's very gentle with her in that scene. He is. And, and yeah, I thought that was kind of sympathetic to him, kind of to the point that he is not, for me, he wasn't a immediately a negative character. He just, he brought his own belief system and, and the island has its own belief system. And I didn't feel like Robin Hardy or Anthony Schaefer had one one preference one way or another. I, I thought right. they were really skeptical of any kind of belief system or any kind of superstition. Uh, and I thought that was uh, nicely set up. Uh, yeah, so, so let's, I was going to say, yep. should we talk about the candy shop since we're kind of... Before we go to the candy shop, uh, I just want to note one really awesome uh a piece of cinematography. Yeah, um, yeah. So the cinematographer on the film is um, is Harry Waxman, who I've not really heard of before at all, but he does something really incredible when when he Howie lands on the shore and he hands around the photo of Rowan to, to see if they recognize her, and the camera circles all of the men in tight close-ups, so we get to see their faces as they pass the photo, and it's it's really eer an eerie shot. It. it the camera is circling the men as they're passing the photo, and as they, before they even look at the photo, they're they're denying that she's from the island. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. They hardly even they hardly even glance at it, and then the camera pulls back as soon as they um, as soon as they uh, mention May Morrison, you know, the owner of the candy shop, and I just thought that was a beautiful scene, just really eerie, sets the atmosphere of the film. You know, we go from these aerial shots of the islands that are really beautiful and this gentle folk song about corn rigs and barley. And then we go to, you know, a, a silent, you know, no music on the soundtrack and this scene of this missing girl. And the uh, camera circles these men in a very eerie way. And I also like how he says he tells them that there's a missing 
child and and the villagers tell him oh a missing child is trouble and he says yes for everybody <laughs> it's, it's kind of uh-huh. obviously he's thinking of himself there a little bit um so um yeah but but beautiful beautiful cinematography the other thing that i wanted to mention is so in addition to harry waxman there's the guy who did the um the settings and the set design seamus flannery i think is his name and I, I think this, the film had incredible set design as well. I think both of those guys worked together incredibly. And one just little factoid that I noted is that because they filmed in November and it was supposed to be spring, that Seamus Flannery had to literally put fake flowers on all the trees and took him like literally hours and hours to, to kind of dress the trees with fake flowers so it would appear to be springtime. Yeah, I was wondering about the uh, the palm trees. Like, were those all yeah. planted? Those must have all been planted. Yeah, well... So the palm trees, I noted that too. I think, first of all, yeah, I mean, I think they were definitely planted, but I think they were there to begin with. I read that it was filmed in Logan's Gardens or something and that there were palm trees there. But for me, it like establishes the fact that this is an odd island. I mean, these are not native trees, obviously, and there's odd flora on this island. Yeah. And that just, for me, set up the kind of backstory of why the Lord Summer Isle, or his grandfather, came to the island because, you know, they're testing out some experimental flora. They're trying to raise some new strains of crops, and and so the palm, the palm trees just is a symbol of something not belonging on the island. But so jumping ahead to the candy shop, uh, if we can we can go to that, to that scene. So that that's a pretty iconic image. The first shot of the candy shop, where you see all of the the strange looking confectionaries, the chocolate covered. Uh, you know, a uh, little child that looks very scary and the chocolate-covered chicken and toads and turtles. Oh, yeah, I love it. That That is the craziest, like, Willy Wonka, like, twisted Willy Wonka store. You know, I just wanted to, you wanted to look at all the details. I, where did all this stuff come from? Did they make it all for for the movie? I guess they must have. I wanted to eat one of those pink elephants. I, I like, yeah. I feel like maybe I'll be changed in some way. I, yeah, they... Um, I saw like a green purple pig, like it was a pig that looked like it had, was, uh, and I was like, "What is this stuff?" Yeah, yeah, and of course there's a um, a cake, a white cake in the shape of a of a person that we'll see we'll see later in the film too, during the sacrifice when they actually cut the cake. Right, right. Pretty cool, but but I think most notably are the hares, right? Because Howie himself mentions like, you know, he calls them rabbits, and he's immediately corrected that they're actually March hares. And they're all over. We see big ones, chocolate ones, little ones. And, you know, that, that sets up the symbolism of the hair, which re- recurs repeatedly throughout the film. You mentioned the drawing of the hair that um, the girl, the, the daughter of Mae Morrison is drawing. And the girl herself acknowledges that Rowan exists. She's the first character to say, you know, oh, yeah, I know Rowan Morrison. Or I know Rowan. She doesn't say Morrison. And... Rowan's a hare, which which is interesting and is a foreshadowing to later when he digs up the casket and there's a hare in the casket instead right. of a body. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's funny we're recording this on Easter, and that's the hare. I mean, I, I'm assuming it's it's a similar connection of the hare spring and rebirth. You yeah. know, it's it's Easter. You know, in a nutshell. Um, or yep. an, egg, an eggshell, if you will. There's also egg symbol symbol uh, symbols oh, yeah. in the in the movie later. I think also the hair. I read the hair is also a symbol of foolishness or trickery, and so it kind of sets up. If that's the case, it sets up the idea that Howie is being tricked or fooled into into coming to the island. Yeah. 
Yeah, but the hairs will re recur throughout the film in, in many ways, and the, this is the first viewing of them, and yeah, that seems pretty extraordinary for sure. And I, we go from there to the Green Man Inn, right, which itself is some important symbolism. Also the most common pub sign in England, from what I've read. But we, we do see right away a bunch of people who are drinking, of course, as we enter the pub. And it, almost immediately, this is the first, the first time I saw the film, this is where I got my first sense of whiplash, because it, it immediately launches into a musical. So that's where we get the Landlord's Daughter tune right away. So we meet the innkeeper first, and he's played by Lindsay Kemp, who is a big character actor, right? I've, I remember seeing him before. Uh, yeah, apparently, so he was uh, one of the early mime, he was an early influence on David Bowie because of his interest in mime, and you know David Bowie had this whole mime thing. And uh, yeah, that makes sense, because Lindsay Kemp actually does move in a really kind of evocative way, he's kind of scurrilous a little bit, he's kind of a like sketchy looking guy, and a little bit freaky looking, and he he's not, I think, what you would picture as an innkeeper, you know, right, the kind of no. good times, you know, barrel-chested kind of heavy drinking guy, he's you know, he's, he's kind of an eerie guy. And he also, later on, he actually makes a direct threat to Howie later on in the film. So yeah. he's kind of, yeah, he's, he's a little sinister as well. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the musical number. I was just going to say, I, I think maybe we had referred to this before, but there's that um, that term and that, you know, about the Dogma 95 idea where yeah. they were going to make movies and they had all these rules. And one of them was that you had to have diegetic music, like that if there was music in a scene, it had to be like actually right. happening in the scene. And that's yep. what's so so great and real about all of the musical numbers is that they happen in a context where they really could occur. You know, Absolutely. it's 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 not just someone serenading somebody, you know, randomly. It's you can I've been to pubs where they do just sing songs all night, you know what I mean? It's not right. it's not that out of the, out of the question. Well, that's interesting because it's I you know, if you think about this movie as a musical, you know, in, in most musicals, the, the songs actually tell the tell the story to propel the action of the film forward. But they're not used, you know, purely in a diegetic way. The songs themselves are are a dramatization of the action. But in, in this film, which is kind of a musical, the songs are completely diegetic. Just like you said, you would you would expect to hear singing in a pub or in a maypole ceremony or during a procession when they're chanting, yeah. uh, summer is a coming. And yeah, you would expect to hear that. And so it's both like a musical in the sense that it actually does dramatize the story and the action, but it's also some, some somewhat realistic. Like you actually might hear people singing in the fields. And it, apparently where Robin Hardy first got the idea to do The Wicker Man was when he was on a shoot in England and he went to a pub and they were there was some kind of, weird ritual festival type thing going on in, in the pub. He, he basically stumbled into a, a musical kind of festival and, you know, had this idea to do the film from, from that. Yeah, I mean, th th those, those festivals go on all over England, and it's, it's almost a little shocking to, like, an American in that we wouldn't embrace sort of pagan traditions in that same way without being a little bit like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't something we should be doing but they're literally you know they're running through the streets hitting each other with like uh, bladders on sticks and uh you know morris dancing and and hobby right. horses and and actually um in hastings where i used to live they have a green man festival every year where like the whole town people dress up as 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 leafy green people 
uh, for yeah. for a parade. I've I've been meaning to get there. I don't think I've ever actually gotten to go to the festival, but I've been meaning to get there. But nice. but yeah, for sure. I mean, then that's part of what they're showing about how positive this pagan society is that music is such a central part to their life and that they don't even worry about it, that it's just always, they're always singing and dancing. and Yeah, yeah it really fits in here. And it's, like I said, it's where I first got the sense of whiplash. Like, wow, what is, what is this I'm watching? Is this a, is this a folklore film? Is this a, a, a musical? Is it a horror film? What is this? Yeah. That, just, the music works brilliantly. And maybe this is a good place for us to talk a little bit about the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paul Giovanni and the band Magnet. I think I think he just for I think he formed the band for the movie. The be- members of the band are actually in the film, right? They're in the scene in the pub, and they're playing traditional instruments. They're playing, uh, you know, concertinas and and guitars and lutes and bagpipe. Well, bagpipes later, but yeah, I love the I love the violinist. There's like this young violinist yeah. who's just kind of right. a striking figure, and he doesn't look more than like seventeen or eighteen, you know. But he's right, right. They're all young. And, you know, this reminds us that this took place, you know, just after the psychedelic era as well, where a lot of folk music was being transformed into folk rock and into, you know, into, in, in England, not so much folk. Well, folk rock meant something different than in America. It was, you know, groups like Pentangle and Steel Ice Band and Fairport Convention who were bringing back some of these traditional songs with modern rock instrumentation. And that's all over the soundtrack. The soundtrack has a lot of psychedelic guitars on it and other other modern electric instruments combined with things as an auto harp and bagpipes and flutes and, and the violin, like you said. So great, great combination of instrumentation. Uh, I've read somewhere that this is really the only folk horror film that actually has somewhat of an authentic folk-sounding soundtrack. Oh, yeah, that's something to think yeah. about, yeah. I think maybe the only other film that I could say that is the film Tamlin, if you've ever seen that one with Roddy... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to say Roddy Doyle. I wanted to say Roddy Piper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, he that film Tamlin is based on the Tamlin uh, murder ballad, and it's uh, it uses it, it has a soundtrack by Pentangle actually. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I've heard yeah, about the movie. I haven't seen it though. Yeah, it's on YouTube, so you know you can link to it, but. It's definitely, it's more of a modern film, and it's, you know, not a great film, but it's definitely a folk horror-inspired or folk horror-ish film and does have a folk rock soundtrack, which not many other folk horror films do. I mean, most of them have orchestral, traditional kind of Victorian-sounding, Gothic-sounding soundtracks to them. Yeah. Um, This one had, had a real Celtic feel to it. I mean, it really... So not just the combination of instruments, but the combination of songs, too, like traditional tunes like Summer is a Coming and the Robert Burns poems we mentioned. Child ballads apparently were used in the instrumentation, nursery rhymes. Uh, some of them kind of give the film a sinister feel, like when they sing Ba Ba Black Sheep. I felt like that was kind of spooky, actually. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so the soundtrack is, is clearly something that has had an independent life beyond this film and has influenced a ton of musicians to the point where I think it's, it's created a whole genre of, of music, right? Neo-modern pagan folk musicians who are on that John Barleycorn anthology and the, yeah, um, yeah. some of those anthologies that you've shared with me. You know, I think feel like a lot of them are, are directly inspired by this film and this soundtrack. And I know they've had, you know, some gatherings, music gatherings over the last, I don't know, decade or so that 
are paying tribute to this soundtrack. And I guess we should say that the soundtrack itself was first reissued by Johnny Trunk, right, on Trunk Records. Yeah, yeah. And I think he took there, – there was no original uh, master copy, so he actually took it straight from the film. And I saw – I did watch a few of the extras, and apparently the Paul Giovanni was kind of pissed about that, it sounded like, just because of the quality was so poor of, of that first that first release. Oh, okay. And it kind of inspired him to go back, and I guess they – to a release a more official soundtrack um taken from from better better masters but it's you know it is one of the best film soundtracks of all time i I mean i feel it's it completely both has a life of its own beyond the film and it works completely well as as an actual soundtrack to the film where each song plays a role in the story and and you can say with the landlord's daughter this is not just introducing us to willow but it's introducing us to the very lax morals in comparison to our kind of Judeo-Christian morals of the town itself. I mean, this basically, the song is basically him pimping out his daughter. <laughs> yeah. And, and not, not just to the, to Sergeant Howie, but to the entire town. Yeah. She's almost seen as, um, a, as a goddess. Like they, uh, um, Samurai kind of refers to her as like the goddess of Aphrodite when he's yep. bringing that, that boy to her. Um, right. and it's, kind and like it's, an it, and it's yeah. not as if it's, I mean, you could say it's nasty, but it's not as if she's not, she's, that she's against any of this. Like, she's just, she's happy this is the way it is and it doesn't bother her. Playing her role. I mean, everybody has a role in this, in this village and her role is to initiate the young virgins into, into sexual maturity. And that goes for Howie too, who himself is a virgin and who she seduces very famously, which we'll get to later. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I read that there's, so there's, there's some evidence that there's even more footage that was filmed that was destroyed, actually buried under a, a highway in England. Um, and there's some like still images that exist that suggest of some scenes that we hadn't seen. And one of them is Willow giving, um, Sergeant Howie a massage, oh, which really? would be weird just because there was some sort of contact with them you know, at some point, um, there's some other, yeah. uh, some other interesting things. Um, or there's a fight between, you know, the, the giant big guy names Oak. Yeah. Um, yeah. that He's he, the one who takes him up yeah, to the sacrifice. apparently yeah. there's some sort of violent thing in the bar where Oak is fighting with somebody. So hmm. there's all these scenes, but then again, you can kind of see why maybe those scenes didn't really make sense to, to be put in the movie. Cause they don't really make, you know, make the movie better, but. Yeah, well, some of the scenes were probably just cut by the censors, too, right? Oh, right. For, yeah. We'll even, get to that, you know, yeah, soon, yeah. yeah. Well, even in, the, even in the pub, as they're all dancing around, that guy, that Oak guy, you know, he has a really sexually suggestive dance with Willow at right, one point. Right, right. It's like doing the Lombada or something. <laughs> I, I also noted one of the lyrics of the songs that I really appreciated, which is that, you know, the path that lies between her left toe and her right toe. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, she's being offered up right away, and I think that song really exists just to make Howie uncomfortable. I mean, just to kind of right. dramatize how much of a prude he is. And and we also get shots of the, the photos on the walls, so we see there's a missing photo of the Harvest Festival. And it kind of also we see him eating later, and he gets basically food out of a can because there's no fruit or vegetables on the island, which kind of sets up the idea that they're experiencing a drought. There's no apples, there's no fruit. Um, to serve him. Yeah, I like the part about the, the beans are turquoise. <laughs> it's just a, a nice yeah. line. Yeah, what did uh, 
what did she say, right? Because he says to her, like, oh, it's like it's turquoise. And she says, some things in their natural state are more are more vivid than they appear or something like yeah, that. Yeah, what is what is she is she talking well, about being talking, nu- naked or I, I was wondering what she was talking about when she said that and whether it was nudity or just just like the kind of psychedelic aspect of the film. Like so much of it is vivid. Uh, you know, the colors in the in the in the landscape are so vivid and and the sense that we've like through our years of civilization and living in cities, we are sometimes somehow we're not able to see all of the colors in nature or all the vivid imagery that exists out, out in the natural world. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's just kind of a cool quote, even though I wasn't exactly sure what it meant either. But so that also, is the, just, that is the scene where they, they look at the photographs as well. That was at that same time. Cause yeah. those were in the inn, right? Okay. And later he finds the photo of course, in the chemist's, uh, in the chemist's dark room area and and it shows that there was no harvest and it also is the second photo of rowan morrison that we see later too so these are just clues that were purposely left like breadcrumbs for him to follow yeah you almost wonder if like um lord summer isle had to get everybody together and like tell everybody what their part was in this and how what they had to do yeah. and yeah right, right. it's theatrical it's like they're putting on a play absolutely right. It makes me also think about Hamlet, right? In Hamlet, there's the play, and the play is is designed to reveal the the murderer. The name and, of the play is Mousetrap. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So for for me, that's like this is a great big play that's happening in real time on this island, immense to ensnare Howie. And so that's kind of a brilliant way to think about the entire movie as as a as, as a unspooling of a play or some kind of drama. Much has been said of the strumpets of yore, of wenches and bawdy house queens by the score. But I sing of a baggage that we all adore, the landlord's daughter. Thanks for listening to the Folk Horror Podcast. For screen captures, interesting links, and so forth, go to my blog, boojumpudding.blogspot.com. One of the ideas we had when we were making this was... it. I often see the same screen captures, uh, same scenes repeated over and over again from movies. So if there's something in The Wicker Man that you particularly like, it's maybe not not one of the more well-known screen captures, please send that to me. You can just email it to me, neil at candlelens.com. You can put it on Facebook or on my blog, um, whatever you want. But I thought it would be fun to you know, take a look at the movie from maybe some different points of view. And also, you should follow me on Facebook, as I mentioned, Facebook slash Candle Ends Media. You can follow Candle hyphen ends on Twitter. You can follow Mike on Twitter. He's at HappyWanderer13. Or you can follow Candle Ends Media on Instagram. You can see my pictures of ketchup that I made on there. Send me a letter. Send me your comments, your complaints, uh, problems you have, personal or otherwise. You can email them to neil at com. Send me your letters. I'll read them off on the podcast if it's appropriate, if it's something you that people might want to hear about. But, uh, hey, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And stay tuned for uh, next week when we'll talk more about The Wicker Man. I think you can tell... We really like this movie. I hope you do, too.